Don't stop. My life, it's a challenge. Every day I face new decisions, new crucial choices. I recognize what I choose to do today affects my future. I can't afford to waste my time in the dead-end cycle of mediocrity. Good isn't good enough. For me, it's all about best practices. Good morning, everybody. And welcome to Best Practices. This is week three. And uh, I want to start by taking us back to last week. So if you weren't here last week, I apologize. But there was a point in the message in all four services that everybody laughed. And I can sort of know ahead of time where people are going to find humor. But I was sort of surprised last week that everyone laughed at this particular point. Because I hadn't thought it was all that funny. But then after I went home, thought about it on Saturday night, I realized maybe it kind of was funny. Uh, I, it was such a painful story to tell. I mean, if you, if you weren't here, I, this, the talk was on prepare instead of repair. And I was telling about how I had to repair, have repaired a car that I drove into floodwaters. And we'd had rain for 24 hours, and, and uh, it was night. And I saw water all the way across the road, but I said, hey, I can handle that. Drove right into it, killed my car, engine, water, and flooding. If you were here last week, you heard the story. But the point I want to get to was uh, when I was talking about consequences, how that when you make choices, you have consequences. And I, and I got to a place in the talk where I said, it didn't matter whether I was the most ardent God follower or rock-ribbed atheist. In fact, I said, God loves me very much. I know he loves me. He's shown his love for me. But when I drove into floodwaters, my car got flooded just as fast as an atheist. And I said, no angel came and picked up my car and moved it out of the way. We, everybody kind of laughed at that point. And, and so I, I thought about that. The reason why we laughed, I think, might be, for those of us who grew up in church, might have been more nervous laughter than anything else. Because I think in our groundwater, we've gotten the impression through some preaching or teaching that we've heard, that if you're a God follower, God sort of keeps you from having the consequences of bad choices. That, you know, that's, that's part of the deal when you sign up to follow Jesus. That's part of the perks of being a Christ follower is you don't have to live with normal consequences. And I think we, all, we know that's bogus. And I think that's why we laughed last week. Because when, when you heard me say, my car flooded as fast as an atheist would flood, what made that funny was, you know, it, it's true. It doesn't matter if you're a God follower or you're not a God follower. Certain decisions you can make in life and it's not, going to have a, it's not going to have a different bearing. Now, I want to translate that to today's best practice because I think, personally, if you have a traditional religious background or even if you have, let's just say, an evangelical background, as I do, I think we may struggle with drawing a connection between the principle explained with me driving into flood water and what I'm going to talk about today. In fact, some of you are about to disagree with me very strongly, which is not important because you don't have to answer to me anyway. You answer to someone else. I want to suggest to you, in fact, I want to teach you strongly today that the way we take care of our bodies has a large bearing on how long we're going to live and how good our health is going to be and our availability to serve God. There is a verse in the Bible that is one of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. It is Hebrews 9.27. And I cannot tell you how many messages I've heard ministers preach from Hebrews 9.27. Now let me quote it for you as it is in the authorized version. It says this, And 
as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. It is sort of a clause that gets ready to qualify an upcoming statement. But there are those who look at that and say, it's a, you have an appointment with death, and there's nothing you can do to change it. I, can, I cannot tell you how many messages I've heard in which ministers stood before a crowd and say, you have an appointment with death, and you can't change it. You're going to die. There's a date on God's calendar when it's predetermined that you're going to die. I think that is absolutely bogus, because that's not what the verse is saying. If you look at the verse in context, it's saying, if you're human, you have one appointment with death, but after that, you're going somewhere. So it's true, all of us, unless Jesus comes back, all of us are going to die one time. That is the meaning of that verse. It does not mean that you have an appointment with death and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change it. Here in America, we're so blessed. I don't know if you do this or not, but there are times when I go into a grocery store and I see the shelves stocked with food and I give God praise and glory in Dylan's. Honestly, I know that sounds crazy, but probably it's more sane than we realize because there's so many places in the world that don't have the choices of food readily available and so inexpensive as we have here in the United States. And so when I go into a grocery store or even a convenience store and I see the shelves stocked with food, it's a moment for me to stop and give God glory for his goodness to us in the United States. But the problem with that is, is that because food is so plentiful and so available to us, we begin to overeat. And we commit, and here's the thing, you will hear more sermons in church on sex and money than you will hear on what I'm going to talk about today. Most of the time, it's because ministers are overweight. <laughs> it's true. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I mean, how many times, for those of you who grew up in church like I did, how many, how many of you have heard, back really in the old days when, when ministers used to preach a lot against smoking, how many of us have heard a minister just give a rock rib, fire-breathing message about how you should not smoke, and he's 60 pounds overweight? And, and I think, at least partially because of that, we, we under-talk about the sin of gluttony. Have you ever thought about the word gluttony? The word gluttony comes from the root word glut. That's an ugly word, isn't it? Even an ugly sounding word. If you have a glut of something, you have too much of it. And we have a glut of food here in the United States. And the unfortunate thing is, because it's so available, and also because of our culture, and I think it's time, and I kind of hinted at this in the first talk of the series, I think it's time that we embrace the reality that our culture force feeds us. Many of us will go to a restaurant when this service is over today. I'm an older person, so I can remember what portion sizes looked like 15 years ago. I can remember what portion sizes looked like 30 years ago. Today, when I go to a restaurant and I order a meal, they bring out a plate of food that probably could feed a family of six. And if you and I eat everything that's there, and if you had, you know, if you had a mom like most of us did that said, be sure and clean your plate, if you clean your plate, it won't be long before you won't be able to get into that restaurant door. And I'm not making a joke about this because here in the United States, and I, I was interested in reading a survey from the USA Today because the first analysis to estimate the future medical costs of obesity in America tell us that by the year 2018, obesity in the United States is going to cost us $344 billion or 21% of our health care costs. And we're already struggling to pay for health care in the United States. I was reading what Reed Tuxen said, United Health Foundation. I just, this quote stood out to me, and maybe it won't stand out to you, but it really got my attention as an American. 
He said there is a tsunami. That's an interesting choice of word. There is a tsunami of chronic preventable disease about to be unleashed into our medical care system, which is increasingly unaffordable. Now, did you hear that? There is a tsunami of preventable disease. Now, let me just take a moment and time out so that I can state what we all know. Because some of you are already pushing back against this concept because you're saying, Mark, I know people who take very good care of themselves and they still contract illness. Absolutely. No doubt about that. One of the best friends I had died before he was 30. I never knew of anyone who took better care of himself. He was a coach in the school where I, where I, was, where I taught. And he was a very godly young man. He won people to Christ. He was a Christian. He loved the Lord with all his heart. I never knew anyone who was in better shape in my life than he. He was careful how he ate. He worked out every day. He was the epitome of good health. But he contracted lymphoma and passed before he was 30. Yes, I know that. And I know there's some bizarre stories of someone that you know who ate a quart of ice cream every day and smoked three packs of cigarettes and lived to be 100. But you and I know that's an anomaly. That's not the norm. So I want to back both things off the table because, yes, it's true. You could take perfectly good care of your body and still wind up with a disease that claims your life early or restricts your ability. I'm well cognizant of that. But here's the thing in best practices. Obviously, I'm not asking you and I'm not asking myself to control what we can't control. It's when Reed Tuxen used that word preventable that got my attention. Because, see, here's the thing. If you and I are Christ followers, if we do something that causes us to suffer and it was preventable, just as the angel would not pick my car up out of the flood water, God's not bound to protect Mark if he eats unwisely. So I want to talk about that, and, and I know that this is, again, it's not something that you and I would hear a lot about in church, and, and many of you who will come from a traditional church will walk away and say, I'm not really sure that was a message today, and I just don't think we should talk about that in church. Yeah, we should talk about that in church, and I'll explain why, because God has so much to say in the Bible about how we take care of our bodies. And of course, for some of us here today, when we hear, and let me just say this, I'm not going to apply this message a great deal. A lot of my messages, when I give them to you, are in application. In other words, I show you what the Bible has to say about how we should live our lives, and I try to take a few moments to talk about how we can apply it and how you can take it to work on Monday or Sunday afternoon or whenever. I'm not going to do that today because this is an unusual topic. Most of the topics I preach on, the world is exactly backward to God's way of teaching. But this is a time where you can go out and get all kinds of good information. You can buy a prevention magazine on your way home if you're over 50. If you're not, you can buy one of the magazines that talks about health. You can go talk to your physician. We have many physicians here at New Spring. I got a tremendous message from a doctor who was here last night who talked about change that he had made in his own life as he became concerned about taking good care of his health. You can talk to your physician about this. So there's all kinds of ways of getting the information that you need to get about how to take better care of your body. And then beyond that, we're a wide range of differences in this area. Some of us, it's going to be a matter of losing some weight. Others of us, it's going to be exercise. Some of us, it's going to be stopping smoking or ingesting substances that are harmful to our bodies. Others of us, it's going to be getting enough sleep. So I'm not going to give you specifics today. You need to analyze your life and come up with a plan to be healthy so that you can be your very best. What I want to give you today is what God has to say about how we take care of our bodies. Well, I opened it up. I asked for it, so let's go here. One of the things that we learn in the Bible is that God had something to say to some ministers who were overweight. 
So let's talk about people who do what I do and how that somehow, for some reason, it seems to be a problem for ministers. In the Old Testament, we didn't have, we didn't have pastors like we have today. We live in the church age. But back in the Old Testament, there was an economy of worship that had priests. And these are not priests like we know of them in modern times. Priests were God's representatives. They were spiritual influences, spiritual leaders who led Israel and Judah. And they performed worship at the tabernacle and the temple and, and places of worship. God had strict requirements about how these priests lived their lives. And you can understand why. God wanted these individuals to be examples to his people. He wanted them to live lives so that when people looked at the way they lived, they could see an example of how God wanted to work in people's lives. Now, God gets real specific. If you've ever read through the book of Exodus or, or Leviticus and you get, in, you get bogged down in all those dietary restrictions, you can see that God was very specific about how he wanted his people to take care of themselves physically, and specifically the priests. This may be more than you want to know, but oftentimes people would bring meat offerings to God. And part of that meat offering process was the fat was to be burned off as an offering to God. And then the meat that was left over was to go to the priests. Now you get both the spiritual aspects, and I know all of us get the practical aspects of God's advice. He wanted the fat burned off, and he wanted his spiritual leaders lean, clean machines. He wanted them eating the lean meat. Now, when you open the book of 1 Samuel, you will see that the leading priest in East Israel was a man named Eli. I think Eli was a fairly godly man. The only problem was he was a round mound. He was very rotund. He did not restrain his eating habits. He was not disciplined in that area. Parents, remember this. If there's an area in our lives where we're undisciplined, chances are our kids will pick up an absence of discipline and they'll take it to a whole nother level. Eli didn't discipline his eating habits. As far as I can tell, he disciplined himself sexually, but he didn't discipline the way he ate. His two sons who became priests after him, they not only didn't discipline the way they ate, they didn't discipline themselves sexually. And when you read the beginning of 1 Samuel, you'll see that they were sleeping with women who came to worship. It was just a horrible thing. And that's God's explanation for why he raised up Samuel. But we'll set that aside for a moment. I want to talk, I want to just share with you some of the progression of God's words to us about how these guys ate. See, what happened with Eli and his sons is they had a servant who would go out and receive the meat offerings. And of course, the people who brought the offerings, they were very concerned that their offering was presented properly. But Eli and his, servants, Eli and his sons had instructed their servant to say, just give us the meat raw because they wanted to eat the fat. Let's read it. In, in 1 Samuel 2.16, if the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first. This is the guy coming to make a sacrifice. And then take whatever you want. The servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. I want the whole ribeye. I want fat and everything. Now, what, how did God answer that? God comes to talk to Eli, the old man, about this. And here's what he said. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? Why are you flipping me off? And offering that I prescribe for my dwelling. Why do you honor your sons? By the way, every time you read the word honor in the Bible, it's a word that means value. When the Bible tells us to honor our father and mother, that means value your father and mother. So God is saying to Eli, why do you value your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? 
So God came to Eli and said, Eli, you need to do something about this, man. You are the round mound. You're getting fat, and you're getting fat by eating what you should not eat. Eli, you need to deal with this. But evidently, he didn't deal with this because two chapters later, we read about how Eli died. And and here's the thing, guys. Always remember this. The Holy Spirit never wastes any words. When God puts something in the Bible, he wants us to pay attention to it. Look at this. Eli fell backwards off his stool where he sat next to the gate. Eli was an old man and very fat. When he fell, he broke his neck and died. You see all that fat? Caught up with him. He fell over. He was so heavy, broke his neck. Now, I want to give you a couple of disclaimers before we go any further in this message. Because I know that you can be here today and you can say, Mark, I feel like you're taking shots at me. I want to give you a couple of thoughts about that. Number one, first of all, this is not to judge anybody else. Because there are all kinds of health concerns and metabolism things and, and so on and so forth. There are diseases sometimes. There are, dis, there, there are just physical dysfunction that has a bearing upon our shape. So nobody should judge anybody else. And then there's a second reason why that's really important. I thought I was taking pretty good care of myself until I started working on this message because I exercise. And I think I watch my weight. I found out I'm between 25 and 30 pounds overweight. So if you feel like I'm taking shots at you, I want you to realize that I'm delivering this message in front of multiple television cameras. (laughs) Over the period of four services, thousands of people, thousands more on the internet and television. You will know within a matter of weeks or months whether I took this message seriously or not. So I don't want anybody to feel like I'm taking shots at you. I've already told you. I've discovered I'm 25 to 30 pounds overweight, and I'm going to work on that. But my question for us today is, does it matter how we take care of our bodies? Because there have been those in the Christian church who have taught through the years that it does not matter about your physical body. All that matters is your inner person. I want to take you back to the very first century of the church. Jesus most likely ascended probably somewhere around AD 28 or 29. By the middle of the first century, the church was rocking and rolling. It had blown up in Jerusalem. It had blown up in Antioch. It had gone all over the world. And church was really going full bore. In fact, it can be argued that the greatest century of the church was the first century. But one of the challenges that came to the early church, in fact, for those of you who read the New Testament, what I'm about to do for you right now, I'm about to explain why you read a lot of things that you read about. For instance, if you ever read a lot about foods that are eaten and so on and so forth, It all has to do with a big body of false teaching that crept into the early church. And this is more than you want to know, but it was called Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a, a seepage that had come from Eastern religions and also from Greek philosophy. And the Gnostics, had, there were all kinds of schools of Gnosticism, and you can read about it if you want to study. In fact, you can even check this out in Wikipedia or any, any major uh, encyclopedia. It was a well-known thing. Gnosticism carried with it the primary concept that the body or the material part of you was evil or anything material was evil and anything that's spiritual was good. And there was a, there was a, a correct teaching in the Bible Rightly applied, of course, we understand clearly, but there was, a, there was a teaching in the Bible that seemed to open the door to Gnosticism. 
And if you want to read this, you can read it in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you're taking notes, you can go home and read about this, and the correct teaching there is in the Bible. And what we find in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that we have two natures. If you're a Christ follower, you have two natures within you. When you feel internal conflict trying to follow God, it's because you have two natures. You have what the Bible calls the flesh, which is the old nature that we inherited from Adam, which is predisposed toward doing wrong. Isn't it true that you don't have to work yourself up to overeating? You don't have to work yourself up to lying when you get in trouble? You don't have to work yourself up to, you know, feeling jealous when somebody else has something that you want? That's not something we have to work real hard to do. We have to work hard not to do those things. So you have the old nature, which is predisposed toward wrong. You have the new nature, which God calls the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of God living within us. So in Romans 6, 7, 8, and a lot of places in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the flesh, the old nature, and the Spirit. Well, the Gnostics came along, took a look at that, and said, yeah, we can sync up with that because we believe the flesh or anything material is bad and the Spirit is good. And by the end of the first century, you had Gnosticism. They came into the church, and it was just screwing up all kinds of things the Bible taught clearly. Wow, in the category of much more than you want to know, there was actually a group called docetic Gnostics. If you, ever, if you get asked on the street when you leave today, what's a docetic Gnostic, you'll say, I'm glad I was in church today because Mark told us. <laughs> it comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. And the docetic Gnostics taught that Jesus didn't really have a body. It just seemed like he had a body. And, 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 you know, because obviously if the body is bad, Jesus couldn't have had a body. That's why John would say, whoever confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's of God. Because John was having to deal with these docetic Gnostic freaks. By the way, do you know what the word Gnostic means? It comes from the Greek word gnosis, or noso, which means to know. They, they claimed they had higher knowledge. The simplicity of the gospel is so powerful. Always run from somebody who wants to drag you deeper. That's for another day. But this is very powerful. And so there were, there were two primary schools that grew up within the church that were false about, in regard to Gnosticism. There were those who said, okay, the body is bad, so you got to beat it. And they, they sort of came from the Stoic school of Greek philosophy. The body's bad, so you got to cut it. you got to beat it. you can't, you got to starve it. you you, you got to push it past the point of reason when it comes to exercise because the body is bad. you got to whip it. you got to make it. you got to make it hurt. Boy, I sure wouldn't have been part of that group, I don't think. But then there was the other extreme, and these were people that just lived the most awful lives you can imagine, sexually perverse in every way. And here's what they said, and it must have been very popular, because they said, you can follow Jesus, and, and after all, it's the spirit part of you that's saved, but your body, it's going back to dust anyway. So what does it matter what you do in your body? If you sleep around with 30 different sex partners in the same month, it doesn't matter because whatever you do in the body, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you eat, it doesn't matter what you ingest, it doesn't matter what drugs you use, your body's going back to dust. It's your inner person that matters. Now, that's the reason why so much of the New Testament is talking to us about sorting out who we are on the inside and taking care of our bodies. And why, here's the big thing, why it's important to take care of our bodies. For the next 15 minutes or so, I want to take you on a biblical journey on why it's important for you and me to take care of our bodies. Because it is true we're not taking these bodies to heaven. And a few of us have lived long enough to which we're very grateful for that. Some of you have worked out and eaten right and you're feeling good. And you say, I think I could take this body to heaven. You couldn't. You couldn't. 
So yeah, you're not going to take this body to heaven, but it is important to take care of it. And we're going to see why. Let's just scroll through some scriptures that will help us. Here's the first Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul is writing a young pastor. Paul is mentor. Timothy is a mentee. I think reading in between the lines, Timothy does not take very good care of his body. Just, just, just guessing. So Paul writes him and he says, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. And then he goes into a simple statement. Physical training, the Greek word is gymnasia. We get our word gymnasium from it. In other words, working out, going to the gym, going to the Y, going to the fitness center. Timothy, you need to do some of that. Gymnasia, physical training is good, advantageous. And then he goes on to say it's even better to be trained spiritually because it promises benefits not only in this life but in the life to come. But he's drawing a comparison there. He is saying, look, gymnasia, physical training, has advantages in this life. Okay? Let's take that as a baseline. Let's take the other side of that and go to the extreme in which Paul writes in the book of Philippians about people whose God is their stomach and their mind is on earthly things. In other words, these are people who just completely go to the extreme, like I talked about a few moments ago, who said, Any, you know, we can just do anything we want to do. Well, I, I want to encourage you with these next few verses to take whatever steps you need to take at the beginning of this year to be in better shape. But before I do, let me give you what I believe are three reasons that you don't want to, these are not good reasons for getting into shape. Number one, don't get in shape to find your identity. All of us know people who've lost a lot of weight, gotten in shape, and they're just insufferable. Right? Just go around. You know, just a pain in the neck. And, and, and what happened is they traded, they traded insecurity for pride. So you don't need to get into shape to find your identity. Number two, you don't want to get into shape, especially when I talk to, to, to those of you who are, who are female. You don't want to get into shape to match up to a beauty that's dictated by the culture. Because so many times that's an unrealistic standard. And thirdly, you don't need to get into shape to feel value. I just told you I need to lose between 25 and 30 pounds. And here's what I understand. God loves me as much right now as he would love me if I were 30 pounds lighter. Fair enough? I mean, he's not going to say, oh, Mark, is, oh, look how good he looks. He's not going to say that. But God's not going to say, oh, I just love him so much more. I just, he's worth so much more to me now that he's lost 25 pounds or 10 pounds or 7 pounds. <laughs> no. And so all those are bad reasons for getting in shape because here's the thing. God, God, you are who you are in God's sight right now, no matter whether you're in good shape or not. And, and certainly God doesn't want you to try to match up to a concept of attractiveness that this world creates. And thirdly, he loves you so much right now, he, he couldn't love you anymore. So then why is it important? And I, this is what I think is interesting to me. This is what God is teaching me is I'll bring this best practice to you because this best practice is, we could call it this, we could call it taking care of your temple. Here is the greatest scripture I know of in the Bible for why you and I should take care of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Bible says this, and, and, and here's the thing, I'm going to read this, and then we're going to take a little time unpacking, because there's three huge concepts, at least in this text. Number one, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you've received of God? You are not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore honor God in your body. 
Did you know (laughs) there were some religious types who thought that that was too physical and they added it. Some of you have a translation that adds, and in your spirit, which are God's. Those words are not in the original text. The simple text says this, don't, and because this freaked out even some religious leaders and, and scholars who looked at this and said, oh, this is too much emphasis on the body, but it is what it is. God says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Honor God in your body. First of all, think about this. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who like to study the Bible, let me just tell you what I thought about when I read this prepping for this message that is a heavy statement and God could have stopped so far short of that God could have said your body's important he could have said your body is significant he could have said your body is a tool that I want to use all those things would have been true but God didn't say that he said your body are we listening your body is the dwelling place, the temple, temple. Temple was the holiest place in Israel. The temple had an internal chamber that was so sacred that only one person, the high priest, could go in there, and he could only go in there one day a year. And if he didn't do things just right, God would kill him on the spot. It was a very sacred place, an almost breathless sacred place. And when God talks about your body and my body, what does he say? Your body is the temple. What happened at the temple? It was where God was worshipped. It was where God was served. People went there as an act of worship. So what the Bible is saying is your body is a place where God is worshipped. Your place is a body where God is served. Your body is, oh, can I dare go here? Your body is a sacred thing. God lives inside of you. So that means everything that you watch, God's right there with you means everybody that you're with, God's right there with you. When you and I sit down to lunch today, God's right there, not just with us, but in us. Your body is the temple of God. And then the second thing that the Bible says, and this, is, this runs so counter to Americans, American way of thinking in 2011, you know, because the idea is my body belongs to me. Okay, if you're not a Christ follower, I guess you can say that, but if there was ever a moment when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, your body doesn't belong to you, and this body, as many issues as it has, does not belong to Mark. And Paul goes on to say, we were bought. You know that blood that came out of Jesus' body? It didn't just pay for our sins. It paid for us. And I'm glad I belong to him. I'm glad glad my mind belongs to him. I I willingly, I joyously relish the reality that I belong to him. But see, I I need to drill down and realize that even my body belongs to him. Isn't it true? Think about something for a moment. Isn't it true that if we wind up using something that belongs to someone else whom we respect, that's very valuable, we're very careful? I flew out to see some friends the other day. And before we flew to another city, and there's traffic in the city is just outrageous. And before we landed there, friends called and said, hey, we, we left our car there at the airport, and, and, and why don't you just 
go by, that way you'll have transportation. Why don't you just go by and pick up our car? And we've left instructions and the key is there. And we, got to this, we got to the place where the car was parked at the airport and it was a very, very nice car. And we instantly took it out on these outrageously awful highways where the traffic is not like it is in Wichita. And I'm telling you, we were careful how we use these people's car. We wanted to make sure their car got back to them in, in excellent condition. What I want to know is, do I understand that that's the thing, how it works with my body? Because my body doesn't belong to me. My body is God's. If I'm using my body, I'm using something that belongs to somebody else. So what do we learn from the text there? Number one, we learned that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number two, our body doesn't belong to us. And now number three... The purpose of our body is to bring glory to God. Guys, just been real with you. I've studied the Bible all my adult life. One of the most challenging words in the Bible that I have to unpack is the word glory. I can tell you what most words mean from the original language they were written in. But there's one word I always struggle. If you back me into a corner and said, explain glory to me. And it's, it's important to me that I understand it because we read about the glory of God. We read about glorifying God. And so I want to know what glory means, but there's no real English word that can be translated glory. It's just some concepts that all kind of merge together. Probably the purest definition of glory is light or majesty. Glory is just sort of a word for that aura that is around God. See, you and I don't have any glory. When we try to glorify ourselves, that's why it's always a sin. But God has glory. And any glory that we have on us is a reflection of God, just like the sun reflects onto the moon. So here's what the Bible says is so wonderful to you and me that if we could grasp this, it would change us. And it would certainly change the way we take care of our bodies. Number one, our, our bodies are the temple of God. They're sacred. Number two, we don't belong to ourselves. And number three, the purpose of our bodies is to glorify God. This is not a great illustration, but it's the best one I can come up with. I'm on my fourth or fifth office. I've lost count here at New Spring. Three-year-olds got my first one. Four-year-olds got my second one. I was in the third office. Finally, and, and, and my, my executive pastor, Billy Poor, is just a pure genius. And he carved out an office for me, and it is so nice. And I've only been in just a couple months. But there's, it's not necessarily expensive piece, but there's an original piece of artwork in my office behind my desk. And if you go in there, Billy has set it up where there are lights that shine on that original piece of artwork. And I can actually slide a dial that controls the amount of light that comes down on this landscape so that it almost appears in different parts of the day. And it's, it's, it's just wonderful. I will darken my office and I will put that light on that on that beautiful piece of artwork and that's what the bible is trying to tell us that our bodies are for our bodies are to glorify god just as if you walked into my office right now your attention would instantly be drawn to that magnificent picture where the light shines on it you and i were meant in our bodies to put glory on god so that when people will look at god through what we do and how we live people will say oh isn't he beautiful Did you know your body was that important? I got to just go through this real fast. Because this is a real good time for us to think about how that's working. 
When you read the Bible, are there just places that sort of get in your grill? There are for me. I mean, I can read and I know they're coming. I'm thinking, okay, get ready. This verse is coming. This is one of those verses. In 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul wrote, In a well-furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals, other to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use. Okay, it's a good day for me to say, okay, Mark, how about your body? Are you a crystal goblet? Are you a trash can? Well, I can pretty well know about what I'm putting in it. I mean, I'm guessing you have some fine dishes in your house. You have some company stuff that you bring out when the company comes that you want everybody to see. It's really nice. How many of us go to the trash can and say, I got genuine rubber made right here? It's an original. It's registered. In, in, in the New American Standard, it says it this way. God wants you and me to be a vessel for honor. We already know that word means value. A vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, like the fine stuff, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. In other words, you and I should take such good care of our bodies that anytime God steps up to us, taps us on the shoulder and says, I'd like for you to do something extraordinary, change the world, we are ready to go. If we're a husband, we're ready to be a good husband. If we're a wife, we're ready to be a good wife. If we're parents, we're ready to be good parents. If we're Christ followers, we're ready to do what God has assigned us in the world. Why? Because we've taken care of our temple. First scripture I ever preached from when I was 16 years old, New Year's Eve, 1972. I read these words to the congregation. And so, dear brothers, I plead with you, give your bodies to God. Let them, what? Your bodies. Let them be a living sacrifice. Holy, the kind he can accept. When you think of what he's done for you, is this too much to ask? So in other words, what the Bible is saying, look, God wants to do great things through your body. I got three minutes. I got to hustle real fast, okay? Is it okay if I talk real fast? I drank as much caffeine as I could, which is not good care of my body, but I want to talk fast right now. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean to, to give your body as a living sacrifice? Okay, you got parts to your body. You got eyes, you got ears, you got hands. Right now, if you're listening to this and receiving this message, you're using part of your body to glorify God. You have hands, feet. Mind, ingenuity, imagination, on and on and on. You, your body has parts. God, just think about the way that God crafted us. This is why evolution just, you know, the idea that it's blind, unguided evolution just sets off all my idiot alerts. Because when I look at life, I just see way too much purpose. I see way too much intentional design. So you have parts to your body. What does it mean to give your body a living sacrifice? Let's read this together. Romans 6, 13. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. In other words, your eyes, use them for God. Your hands, use them for God. Your mind, use it for God. Just go on and on and on with that. Go to places that we probably wouldn't want to go and mix crowd. But whatever you use in your body, use it in a way it glorifies God. And then the Bible says, do it in a timely fashion. This is important for New Spring because we have all ages at New Spring, but we tend to be a pretty young church. 
I know how my generation thought a lot when I was growing up. Youth is for having fun. Get old, eh, that's when you start serving God. That's one reason I just love so many young people at New Spring. So many, you know, teens, kids, young adults. I love that because in many, many churches, that's not the case. I want to say to all of you who still feel good and who are, and, and, and for many of you, you will fit this criteria if you're 75 years old or even 80 years old. I mean, God has been so good to us here in the United States. We've been, we've been blessed with magnificent health care. There are a lot of people who are still young physically, at least by the definition I'm about to read. They're still young at 80 and 85. If George Beverly Shea, who sang for Billy Graham, lives next week, he'll be 103 years old. So listen to what the Bible says. You want to use your body for God. I'm now down to one minute. In a timely fashion. Honor, we know that means value, value your creator while you're still young before the years take your toll, before your vision dims and the world blurs and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. <laughs> Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen, shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. Hikes the mountains, thing of the past. Even a stroll down the street has its tears. Your hair turns white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. You're well on your way to your eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. <laughs> Thanks, Solomon. <laughs> Tell us what you really think. You know what God is saying to us right there? Look, 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 you got time. You have a window of opportunity to make the most of this magnificent tool or even temple that God has given you to serve him. I need one, one or two minutes into overtime, and I'll be through. I don't want you and me to leave opportunity on the table because we didn't take care of ourselves. And it's for those of us who believe you have an appointment with death and nothing changes you, I want to just reach out and shake you by the shoulders today and tell you that's not true. Two of my greatest heroes... Willie Nelson said, my heroes have always been cowboys. My heroes have always been preachers. Because I just, I've been one since I was 16. I've pastored since I was 20. My two greatest heroes in the ministry lived in the 19th century. One man was named Dwight Lyman Moody. D.L. Moody had no formal education. When he was 17, he got a job selling shoes in his uncle's shoe store. His uncle made him go to church. He went to church. And when they first met D.L. Moody, his Sunday school teacher said that there never was anyone more dark spiritually than D.L. Moody. No one less likely to come to faith in Christ than D.L. Moody. He said, he said his heart was the darkest he ever saw. But D.L. Moody came to faith in Jesus Christ. But he was so backward in spiritual things. He made application for membership of the church. They turned him down. But he loved God and he began to study the Bible. <clears throat> And when I use the word Sunday school, they're very different back in the 19th century than they are today. Back in those days, you, you really couldn't go to church unless you were an adult or you were the child of a fairly well-to-do adult. People actually rented pews back then. And so because a lot of kids who lived in the cities whose parents weren't spiritually receptive, uh, there were Sunday schools that sprung up on Sunday afternoon where kids were taught about God, and Moody wanted to volunteer as a 17-year-old for one of these Sunday schools. And they said to him, we don't have any kids come in very much. We have one leader for every kid. Boy, wouldn't that be great at New Spring where we have to cap classes? And they just said, we don't need you. So Moody decided he would start his own. 
A friend who wrote historically about that first meeting that Moody had said he was in an old shanty that a bar had, the bar owner had abandoned. And he said there were just little tallow candles around. Only one little child, little African-American boy, sat there at Moody's knee when Moody tried to read the story of the prodigal son. He said there were so many words in the, in the, in the book that Moody didn't know he kept having to skip. He said he barely could get the story out. But he loved God and he worked hard. And a year later, they were averaging 640 kids at Moody Sunday School. By the time he was 23, this school was so well known. His spiritual work was so well known that on the first Sunday after he was elected, the new president came to Moody Sunday School to sit in on it and actually address the kids. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And I got to finish this story real fast because I could keep here talking about Moody. But Moody began to speak all over the United States, all over Europe. He is known as the man who shook two continents for God. A million people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of D.L. Moody's ministry in the age before the electronic age when there was no mass communication. But D.L. Moody had an issue. He couldn't push away from the table. And he got more and more rotund. In fact, he preached his last sermon in Kansas City. And friends in Kansas City noticed that he had packed on 30 more pounds, preached a tremendous message, went back to his room, and began to suffer and eventually die from congestive heart failure. My greatest hero in life is a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was pastor of the first mega church in the in Western world. 20 years old, he was given a church in London. Again, no formal education. 20 years of age, he was given an old church in London that pretty much nobody else wanted. But within just a matter of years, 5,000, 7,000 people were coming to hear Charles Spurgeon preach every Sunday. In fact, he changed the traffic flow on Sunday in London. They printed his sermons in the Times. He, he, he printed so many, he, he wrote so many sermons that they're, they're all over the place. And honestly, on Saturday afternoon, when I get through with the talk, one of the last things I often do before I come to campus is I want to read what Spurgeon had to say. And so many times I'll sit in my chair and tears will just be all over my face because even now his messages still sizzle with the power of God. But he was overweight and he smoked cigars. In fact, the last years of his ministry, a lot of times, two-thirds of the year was all he could serve because he was out with gout, and depression, and illness. And yet ministers today regard him the greatest preacher since Paul. You know, Spurgeon died when he was only two years older than I. Moody died when he was six years older than I. And I just think to myself, what could they have accomplished if they had lived 10 more years? Who would they have brought to Christ that would have changed Europe? Who would they have brought to Christ who would have changed the United States? They left opportunity on the table because they didn't take care of themselves. You know what? Anything could happen to any of us. I know that. But doesn't it make sense to take the best care we can take of your temple? It's a best practice. Start today. I've eaten so many containers of ice cream while I said I'll start the diet tomorrow. Start today. Make it simple. Make it practical. Let's get started. Let's take care of our temples so that we can be everything God wants us to be. God bless and thanks for listening. Next weekend, best practice number four. I know it's going to make a huge difference in your life. Thanks for being. We'll see you here soon.